Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, welcome back to The Young Turks. Uh, we've got a great guest for you guys. This is our 17th anniversary, uh, and, uh, and we're celebrating by having two wonderful guests today, Adam McKay and Bernie Sanders. Adam joins us now. Uh, Adam, thank you for coming in. Really appreciate it. My uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I've been a fan for a long time. Thank you, brother. Uh, so, me too. Uh, and, and I didn't know it until recently, but it turns out, now I'm going over the top, but you're gonna agree with me by that here. It turns out, a bit of a living legend, Adam McKay, okay? Wow. So, okay, hold, hold, let me prove it to you guys. <laughs> so, first of all, you had me at Anchorman, you co-wrote Anchorman, it's already over, okay? <laughs> Everything else is gravy, but let's keep going. Talladega Nights, the other guys, uh, Step Brothers, uh, so fine, co-wrote uh, and uh, amazing success. Uh, Big Short won an Oscar for it, uh, Best mm-hmm. Adapted Screenplay. Then he uh, wrote, directed, and produced Vice, which we're going to show you a little clip from in a little bit. That's the movie about Dick Cheney. And uh, that only got eight Oscar nominations so far. Uh, but it, to me, what brought the legendary status was the other stuff. So you created Funny or Die, also with Will Ferrell. Mm-hmm. And this I did not know at all. Co founder of the comedy troupe Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh, when you put all that, like, Sometimes there are people that when you look into organizations, it turns out, oh, he did that and that and that. Oh, he started everything. <laughs> You're one of those guys. And you forgot I founded 7-Eleven <laughs> and created Yoohoo. <laughs> you you forgot well, those would, two. Yeah. yeah. Well, I actually did forget that you were, uh, became the head writer at SNL. Uh, and <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on and helped to bring Tina Fey on to make her head writer, etc. So um, let's talk about Vice first because it's, it's still in the theaters. Uh, I saw it, it's amazing. Then I want to come back and talk about your career. Sure. So um, I'm still a little haunted by it. Um, and so there was, it's funny because you make these movies. That are so disparate in a sense. You got you know, the Will Ferrell movies are traditional comedy. Succession on HBO. I didn't even mention that. Succession is the best show I've seen in a long time, right? And you did that too. Oh, like after thanks, everything man. that I watched, I'm now convinced that you're secretly doing Game of Thrones. You're just not telling anybody. <laughs> okay. But but you in the big short and in Vice, you are have a style that I've seen nowhere else. And so Am, am I right about that? <laughs> like, are other people saying, like, oh, whoa, that's totally different? I mean, you know, it's always built upon previous movies and previous influences. I mean, 24 hour party people was a big influence for me, the Michael Winterbottom movie, uh, American Splendor, which was on HBO. So that kind of breaking the fourth wall style also comes out of uh, theater in Chicago, which, you know, has like a hard labor movement kind of root to it. Uh, so there's an influence to it, but yeah, I think it's unusual for today's uh, tapestry for sure. Yeah, because it goes from a really serious story where you're uh, telling the story about how Dick Cheney grew up, etc., and a lot of things I didn't even know. And you know, and I covered the guy for way too long. 
Uh, and and uh, and then you break the fourth wall, and then you've got uh, this incredibly funny, and then weird, and then you know, and this this tapestry uh, that's is quite amazing. But the story itself is also amazing. I want to show you a part of the movie, and then talk about the substance of who Dick Cheney is. So let's watch. I am Scooter Libby, Dick's chief of staff. Uh, I'm also his national security advisor and a special advisor to the president. Technically, Scooter outranks any of Bush's people. Mary Madeline will serve as counselor to the VP and assistant to Bush. David Addington, Dick's main legal counsel, will play center field on all matters relating to executive power. The president has Alberto Gonzalez, Carl Rove, Karen Hughes as his team. Quite frankly, Gonzalez has no clue. Um, Rove is a hack. Hughes should be in double A ball. So we will have fairly unobstructed access to the Oval Office. We will be automatically BCC'd on all emails that the president receives or sends, as well as have access to his schedule the second that it is set or changed. We will also be receiving the daily intelligence briefing before the president. That gets us inside the decision curve. Which we'll actually be reading. Bush approved all of this? We have a uh, understanding. Yeah, no, no, that, that Christian Bale's performance in that movie, it's, it got into my nightmares, right? He, it was so human and so evil at the same time, and that is a very delicate balance. I just told him the same thing. I was like, your performance is so detailed. It's so psychologically grounded, yet haunting. Uh, he dialed into him. I mean, we, you know, we went after this movie. We said, let's chase the mystery of Dick Cheney. Let's find out who this guy is. And we did our work on the end of the screenplay, but Bale went deep. Him and Amy Adams, uh, because as you know, Lynn is a major part of the story of Dick Cheney. The two of them are really almost like one person. And the performances they uncorked are just breathtaking. Yeah, and I actually did not know the depths to which Lynn Cheney controlled Dick Cheney. <laughs> and how much she, in a sense, created him. Uh, it's kind of crazy. It's like when we started doing research, we interviewed people in Casper, Wyoming. And to this day, they still tell you whoever Lynn would have married would have been president or vice president. Mm -hmm. That's actually, like to this day, what they tell you. And from what we found, it seems to be true that she was really the engine for this whole thing. But she was raised in the late 50s at a time where women, you know, in Wyoming especially, were told you can't be senator, you can't go forward. Yeah. And so, Dick Cheney, I'm telling you, I covered the guy exhaustively for eight straight years, and I learned a lot from the movie. I didn't know to what degree he was kind of a bum. Uh, in, in earlier in life and they had terrible grades and, and they had gotten in trouble with the law and Lynn Cheney kind of pulled him up out of that, uh, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and, then, and you know, so many of the um, historical movies, uh, when people are playing that role, it feels like uh, almost like a caricature and or an impression, right? Whereas with Christian Bale, I felt like he was more Dick Cheney than Dick Cheney. And, and, and so, but let's talk about the core of what we just saw in that scene. In essence, Cheney was president for at least six years. The last two years, there was a, a bit of a break, mm -hmm. right? Off the Syria issue where, uh, yeah, he wanted to bomb Syria. 
And by then, Bush had kind of woken up to the fact that he was maybe being played a little bit by Cheney. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but is that, look, I know it's gonna sound crass and we're both progressives and so it's easy for us to say, but you cannot escape the fact that Donald, that uh, I almost said Donald Trump, but it makes sense in this regard, that George Bush is a person who is deeply unintelligent. Like he got manipulated by Dick Cheney so easily and so thoroughly. That's the core of that scene. What the BC seeing everything that the president sees, that's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, and and the fact that he was getting the daily intelligence briefing before the president. I mean, the thing I point out is like at a certain point, reality has to be reality, and the fact is George W. Bush had a 12-year gap in his employment record where he did nothing. Like he clearly wasn't qualified for this job, and Cheney clearly smelled it out. And you look at that BCC getting his schedule before him, the daily intelligence briefing, it was remarkable. I mean, I knew some of this, but when we dug into the research, we were blown away. Yeah, no, the fishing scenes as he's reeling Bush in, just awesome. Okay, I can go on forever on that topic. <laughs> but I wanna talk more about your career. First of all, how'd you get started in entertainment at all? You know, really, I started in the, I was at college in Philadelphia. I was at Temple University, and stand-up comedy was exploding. And I was an English major, and we were just like, there's clubs opening everywhere. Let's go do some stand-up. You can say whatever you want into a microphone. So that was the beginning. Was uh, And there were some of those guys from the early days, it was probably like 87, 88, like Paul F. Tompkins is still working and around and a couple other guys. Uh, but that was the beginning. And then I heard about Chicago and long form improv and that whole scene with Del Close and that changed everything for me. Did you always know that you wanted to go into comedy when you were growing up, or like, or were you like engineer, doctor, comedy, <laughs> like engineer, <laughs> doctor, comedy? Right. Uh, you know, I never really thought of it as comedy. I just thought of it as like, like I said, I was an English major, so I was like reading. I was like a pretentious nineteen-year-old who was reading, you know, Ferdinand Celine and reading all this kind of stuff, and had a girlfriend that smoked clove cigarettes, and <laughs> but, but. Comedy was the big thing. It was just uh, accessible and kind of in front of us. Uh, and Chicago was really the interesting place where it blended it. It was like legitimate theater, comedy, politics were all kind of the same thing. And, and that really changed everything for me. You know, Second City and what they've done. Yeah, and of course you were part of Second City too. Of course, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so were you immediately successful? Oh God, no, 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 I was, uh, I bombed my first six times doing stand-up comedy. I had a guy flick bottle caps at me one time when I was on stage. I went to Chicago, I had no job, I had to dress up as like, I had to wear like a Fred Flintstone outfit and go to like second grade classes to give like Halloween safety lectures. Uh, no, it was disastrous. It was, uh, you know, three, four years, five, six years of being like broke as the day is long. But, uh, and then out of that came the Upright Citizens Brigade and came, you know, Second City and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, some uh, charge that I still dress up like Fred Flintstone. <laughs> okay, uh, I wanna tell the story of how you made it out of that rough patch uh, when we come back. So we're gonna take a quick break here, we'll be right back. 
All right, back on the Young Turks. We're talking to Adam McKay, uh, director, pr uh, producer, and writer of the movie Vice, as well as the Big Short Academy Award winner. Actually, also his writing crew when he was head writer at SNL uh, won Emmys as well. So uh, you're you could be on your way to a goat. Is that what they call it? Uh, greatest of all time, or, or an actual goat? <laughs> <laughs> no, is it a Grammy, Oscar, something, something? Oh, is it? it? EGOT? Yeah, EGOT. Oh, that's an oh, EGOT okay. as opposed okay. to a GOAT. Okay. We actually did not win an Emmy when I was there. The year right after I left SNL, they of course won an Emmy. Oh, right okay. After I left, so I did not get one. Uh, yeah. We're not saying there was a causal connection uh, of you leaving and then winning an Emmy, but. <laughs> it got immediately way better the second I left. Yes. Right. No, okay. So uh, we were talking about how uh, you had started in comedy, but it wasn't going well. Uh, people are throwing bottle caps at you. That's Philly. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. You're dressing up as Fred Flintstone, et cetera. So uh, then. How do you pull up out of that? What went right first? Uh, I'm trying to remember. The first thing was, uh, I think it was IO, the, the theater that Del Close ran, where I started to be able to teach there and help improv groups. So I started to make enough that I could pay my rent. And then the big change was Second City, where all of a sudden I had a real check coming in every week. And that really changed everything. And then, of course, SNL. Uh, which was mind blowing. I mean, the fact that I was in you know New York City and was actually making enough to have like a one room apartment, I, I couldn't believe. So, yeah, SNL was the the jump. That was huge. Yeah, it, it's funny. We have incredibly similar stories, except mine is without the success. Um, <laughs> okay, but uh, you know, you were saying during the break that your uh, parents were pushing you to be a lawyer and you just couldn't do it. I, I was a lawyer for seven months and I just couldn't do it. And 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 I remember getting my break in Miami, and and I'm only telling this in service of of the story I want you to tell about SNL, and I and I tried out and became an entertainment reporter for literally a day and a half, and then they fired oh, me. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love and it. <laughs> but I was so excited at the time that I had a one bedroom apartment. No, not even a studio in in yep. In, yep. in South Beach. But then they said, hey, why don't you become our writer instead? And I was devastated at the time, but it turned out that was my big break. So what happened to you at SNL? So similar thing, I went to audition as a performer. Lorne Michaels had come to Second City, so it was incredibly thrilling. And I knew I did no impressions, I did no giant characters. I was more of kind of the straight guy to even compare myself to Harold Ramis seems like sacrilege, but in that zone. And so I brought some of my scripts that I had written. And I finished my audition and I did okay, I was respectable. And I just right away walked up to Lauren, I was like, I'm a writer as well. And it was the smartest move I ever made and that's how I got in. That's funny because my co-founder here at the Young Tourist, Ben Mankiewicz, um, he was the anchor at the time for me. And he's like, okay, I get it, he's not good on camera. Uh, <laughs> but he's like, I think he's kind of a hell of a writer. <laughs> and he helped to get me hired back there. God bless him, yeah, God bless him. Absolutely, and then we started the Young Turks together later. So, um, and, and we decided we were gonna be progressive and you have been wildly progressive to continue the, the similarities. Uh, do you get flack for how clearly progressive uh, you have been in in your work? It's the it's the strangest thing because the way I came upon it was just I, I wasn't raised left or right. 
It was just out of what was going on. So the first time I really started getting called liberal was when I was protesting the Iraq war, the you know one we depict on our movie. And people were saying, you know, I was saying there's no weapons of mass destruction. I was in those marches. And people were like, wow, you're really a lefty. Not to say I wasn't involved in politics before that, but that was like the big one where I was really vocal. And I was like, why does this make me a lefty that I'm you know, questioning this intelligence? And from then on, that seemed to be the case where you would question things and people would say, oh, you're a progressive, you're a lefty. And I just was like, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but honestly, I feel like I'm pretty moderate. Like, I feel like saying they didn't find intelligence to justify that invasion, which proved to be right, is a pretty moderate, reasonable position. But uh, long story short, yes, people call me a lefty and say I'm super lefty. So yeah. Well, it seems like it seems care. like you've lived the adage of Colbert, which is you know that great line he had at the White House Correspondents Dinner, that reality has a well-known liberal bias. Yeah, yeah. Right? like you were just, and I've never heard a story like that. That's really interesting. But you were like, I don't know. It seems like they, they got the intelligence wrong. They're like, so you're a progressive. You're like, I don't know if being correct is a progressive. I guess I'm a progressive. I, <laughs> I mean, I remember being at that giant march in New York City that like, I remember one police officer telling me he thought there were a million people there. And there was a guy just screaming at us saying, you liberals, you lefties. And I was truly confused by it and was like, what do you mean? No, no, we're out here because it doesn't seem like it's legitimate. So yeah, that's kind of been the case. I don't know. I mean, I, I try and just go against corruption. I try and call it out wherever it's possible. Uh, at a certain point, there clearly are forces that want to call you a lefty. There's been a lot of money put into hating the word liberal, a lot of marketing dollars. So let them have at it. Yeah, but you know, you're also correct in your assessment that it's actually a moderate position. Your positions are because you know, if you look at Medicare for all, it pulls a seventy percent. Raising taxes on the wealthy pulls at over seventy percent, and Green New Deal pulls at eighty-one percent. So that true, really, eighty-one percent. That's wow. right. Wow. So your instinct, which is that, hey, these things are just obvious and logical, are true. That is the center of the country. Mm -hmm. It's just called liberal or left by Washington. The people in power is a way of almost demeaning it because of the marketing dollars that went to calling liberal bad. Right, and so I, I want to just, I, you've got a great series on Amazon too, I wanna talk about that in a second. But I know you care about the Green New Deal. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, I, I think there's no bigger issue facing mankind, maybe in our history, uh, than global warming. I think it's uh, clear this really is a threat. This is a threat to like literally the survival of mankind. So for them even to be, for certain Democrats even to be as civil to present something called a, you know, as a Green New Deal, I feel like is beyond belief because I, I'm in full panic mode. Uh, I'm terrified by the data I'm seeing and I follow people like Bill McKibben and Michael Mann on Twitter and, and read their writings and, and we're in a true emergency right now. We're in a real legitimate scientific emergency. And the idea that anyone would play politics with this and care about lobbying dollars from oil companies or like McConnell's talking about, he's gonna get a vote against it to use it as a wedge issue is demented. And once again, goes well beyond right and left wing. We're talking about like chemical science. We're talking about like the ability to like live and breathe on the planet. So. 
I'm very passionate about it. We touch on it in the movie uh, Vice. I think it's gonna be one of the worst parts of Dick Cheney's legacy is that he was very involved in killing action on global warming. And I think everyone, right, left, moderate, whatever, uh, needs to wake up to this and really do some research on the data because it's not hard to understand. It's very simple what's going on and it's terrifying. Sorry, I went on so long. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I, obviously, I totally agree. In fact, that combines the two themes we've been talking about here. Uh, one is you're, all you're doing is you're citing facts. And it used to be 97, now it's 99% of the world's scientists right. who say it's happening. And then that brings us to your potential next movie. If 99% of the world's scientists said a meteor is going to hit us in 12 years, we must knock the meteor out of this. We gotta do something, otherwise the whole we're all gonna die, right? We, people would. Do something, but 99% of the world's scientists say, no, we are the meteor, yeah. right? And we're like, but we're in a movie where they're like, nah, don't worry about it. I bet you everybody whose whole livelihood is based on bringing you facts is all lying or wrong. I mean, it's just, it seems like the definition of insanity. And when you say, no, those are facts, they go, oh, liberal. <laughs> like what? It's one of the greatest <laughs> marketing advertisement jobs that's ever been done in the history of marketing and advertising. The fact that you can turn science into a point of view, into a political point of view. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Adam Curtis, uh, his movie Century of Self that talks about the advent of advertising and how powerful it is and how it's really defined the last 125 years of, of mankind. I, I think it's essential viewing right now. It's remarkable like how crazy people sound when they talk about this, it really is. Yeah, now you've got another series that also exposes the problems in the world. It's going to be on Amazon. It's called The Giant Beast That Is the Global Economy. It's hosted by Calpine. I wanna show a quick clip here. With uh, cell phone companies, there were auctions over bandwidth and only a handful were able to get that bandwidth. You and I can't just start a cell phone company and just start grabbing bandwidth. So basically, because only a few cell phone companies control all the bandwidth, they can give you terrible customer service? Yeah. Okay. When you call them, the wait times, the sort of attitude, it's really clear. They are not fighting for your business. Yeah. Okay, so Adam, that's gonna start on February 22nd. How'd you get that done? This also reveals the reality of money laundering and so many other ills that are going on in the world. You know what's funny is we did the big short and I got to work with Adam Davidson, who a lot of people would call a moderate. Uh, and he and I just hit it off uh, because really what Davidson is, is he's a journalist and a, and a thinker and he's a guy who's very interested in economics and uh, finance. And the two of us found this common thread that we both just were excited by the power that's inside this subject and the fact that it's actually wildly entertaining uh, and we've just been told it's boring. So out of that sort of uh, friendship was born this idea of this show and we teamed up with producer Eli Holtzman and this show came out of it and it's awesome, it's really good. Yeah, there's all these mythologies including uh, the, one of my favorites used to be, oh, liberals can't do talk shows because liberals can't be entertaining. But you call all of Hollywood liberal, how could we not be entertaining? It doesn't make any sense. All right, everybody check out The Giant Beast That Is The Global Economy on Amazon coming out on February 22nd. And obviously check out Vice, it's got eight Oscar nominations and for good reason. Adam McKay, thank you so much for joining us. Really Thanks appreciate for having it, me, man. Pleasure. All right, thank you. When we come back, Bernie Sanders. 
All right, this is our 17th anniversary, guys. And we've gone back to a three hour show going forward from here on out. Normally, this would be the post game for just the members. But today, we had a couple of amazing interviews. We just talked to Adam McKay. And earlier today, I talked to Bernie Sanders. So I want to make sure that we share that with everyone, obviously. And so that's why we're doing it here live for, for everyone. So I talked to Bernie about Medicare for All, Green New Deal, Just Democrats, and the corporate media. So a lot to check out. Here it is. Joining me now is Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Uh, Senator Sanders, welcome back to the Young Turks and our inaugural Great. segment of the conversation. Great to be with you, Tank. All right, great to have you. All right, I'm, let's talk policy. Let's get do it right right away. So um, I tell you what I want to do before we talk policy. Let me congratulate you guys. I understand now this is your 17th anniversary. Is that correct? That is right. right let right. me just say. Let me say a word on that. And I applaud you and other alternative media for the extraordinary job you have done in forcing discussion on issue after issue that the mainstream media either ignores or de-emphasizes. You know, my criticism of mainstream media is not Donald Trump's. Mainstream media is not an enemy of the people. It is not fake news. The major problem is that what they choose to focus on is often not the most important issues facing the working families of this country. Not the most important issues facing our nation and the world. And you guys do a really good job in that area. And I applaud you and thank you very much for what you're doing. I really appreciate that, Senator Sanders. And we're now 17 years old and the oldest show on the internet. So we're getting some critique for being too old. <laughs> so there's a lot we share in common. So, so am I, as a matter of fact. I get that critique as well. <laughs> so um, actually, I want to get into Medicare in one second. But now you brought up the media, and I'll talk about the media in the context of Medicare as well. But they had a, a town hall for Howard Schultz on CNN the other day. And he, when asked about policy positions over and over again, he didn't seem to have any. And And I just... Trying to figure out why Howard Schultz got a town hall. Um, normally, independent candidates don't get very much coverage. They right. weren't lavishing attention on a lot of the independent candidates in 2016, for example. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any policy positions or any popularity at all. Uh, why do you think that uh, CNN went out of their way to give him such a giant uh, ad in essence, especially when they wouldn't cover your town halls on policy issues? Well, I think the answer is not hard to understand. Like um, former Mayor Bloomberg, who also has no grassroots support, they are billionaires. And in the world we are living in, any billionaire, no matter how little or much he or she may know, becomes a credible candidate because they can pour hundreds of millions of dollars to get themselves elected. Uh, So to answer your question uh, simply and straightforwardly, he gets attention because he's a billionaire even though he may not know much about policy. And people who are out there, serious people, young people, working people who have great ideas, who have a life of struggle, will get zero attention because they're not credible candidates because they don't have a whole lot of money. That's unfortunately seems to be the case quite often in the media. So let's talk about Medicare for all. Now, some are saying that Medicare buy-in is the same thing as Medicare for all. That if they're for that proposal, that means that check, I'm covered. It's the same thing as Medicare for all. And it appears that a lot of the media is going along with that. Is that true? 
No, of course it is not the same. It is fundamentally different. A Medicare buy-in will impact a, a few hundred thousand people. Those people have the money uh, to buy in. It is similar to the concept of public option. That is, if you're not happy with your private insurance, you can buy in uh, to Medicare. When we talk about Medicare for all, we're talking about two fundamental principles. Number one, the need for the United States to join every other major country on earth and guarantee healthcare to all, A-L-L, all people as a right. Second of all, we understand that the current system, because of its dominance by the insurance companies and the drug companies, is enormously wasteful and dysfunctional. And if we are going to have a cost effective universal healthcare system, the only way to do that is through a Medicare for all single payer system. So buy-in is an incremental program that will help some, not a whole lot of people we suspect. Medicare for all basically says that the function of healthcare in America, in America should be provide healthcare to all people as a right in a cost effective way. And also when we do that, we'll be able to substantially lower the cost of prescription drugs in this country because we'll be able to negotiate prices with the drug companies. So it, it, it seems like there's a number of issues there, but it, it seems like you're focusing in on the fact that Medicare buy-in would still keep private insurance and their costs around. And so that if you went to that system, you would not save nearly as much money as Medicare for all. Am I hearing that right? No, you're hearing it exactly right. The system remains intact. You give a certain number of people, we don't know exactly how many, I don't suspect it's a whole, whole lot. The opportunity to get, in this case, a public insurance program called Medicare. But Cenk, what we have got to look at when we talk about healthcare is they ask a simple question. How does it happen that in the United States, we end up spending almost twice as much per capita on healthcare as do the people of any other major country? And the answer is there is the function of our healthcare system today is not to provide quality care in a cost effective manner to everyone. It is to make as much profit as possible for the insurance companies and the drug companies. And unless we deal with that issue, we're not gonna lower the cost of healthcare in this country and we're not gonna cover everyone as a right. So that brings us back to the media because it seems to me that your main opponent is not uh, any other candidate, because they are a lot of them are saying they're for Medicare for all. Now, whether they actually are is a different question, because now they're fudging a little bit and saying Medicare buy-in is the same thing, which as you just clarified is not. It doesn't seem that the American people are an issue, because over 70% of them agree with you. But the media keeps saying that uh, Medicare for all costs more money. They keep citing a Koch study without citing the savings. And now they've even stopped saying that it's a Koch study. They just state it as a fact. And they keep saying it's a fringe idea when it has 70% popularity. So what is going on here? Why is the media keep putting out things there that are at a bare minimum incredibly biased against this policy proposal? Look, Cenk, when I began the program by congratulating you and other alternative media for the important work you're doing, take a look and I'm gonna get answer your question in a second, but take a broad look at how the corporate media has functioned in recent years. In terms of the worst foreign policy disaster in the modern history of this country, which was the war in Iraq. If you check it out, 
virtually all, almost all, not all, McClatchy, for example, played a great role. Almost all of the major media told us it was a great idea, it was a good idea to go to war. When you talk about the major economic crisis facing America today, and that is the movement toward oligarchy and the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality, such that three people now own more wealth than the bottom half of America, the corporate media certainly was not there. When you talk about the great planetary crisis that we're facing today, and that is climate change. The corporate media by and large, with some exceptions, was not there as well. So what you have is a corporate media whose function is to make as much money as they possibly can. That does not mean to say there aren't great writers, that day after day there aren't very good articles. You know, there are. But by and large, you have a media which is owned by very wealthy folks who are trying to make as much money as they can. They are not dealing with the issues that are most important to the needs of working families. Give you an example, just yesterday, just yesterday, we had a really good press conference with a number of senators and a house member talking about the need to expand social security benefits. Because a lot of seniors in this country are not making it on 12 or $13,000 a year social security and extend the life of social security for 50 years by doing away with the cap, which is now at $132,900, almost no coverage at all on an issue that impacts tens of millions of people. So bottom line is, I think the critique of the corporate media is not that it's fake news, not that they're enemies of the people, those are outrageous and ugly statements by Trump. But it is time and time again, they ignored the real issues impacting working people. People working longer hours for lower wages, people living in poverty, young people unable to get the education they need or they're coming out of school deeply in debt. So that is in my view, the critique of the corporate media. Now in terms of healthcare, how many people in this country do you think, Jake, and I don't know the answer to this, like to hear your opinion on it, even know that the United States of America is the only major country on earth not to guarantee healthcare to all people. How many people know that 50 miles away from where I live in Canada, you walk into the hospital, you have cancer, you need extensive therapy and treatment, it is zero dollars. How many people in America even know that? Do we think that the corporate media has told the American people about the healthcare problems and programs that are going on around the rest of the world, that we spend so much more for capital and healthcare than other nations? The answer is no. And that is, you know, that's what the establishment is about, is protecting and preserving the status quo in healthcare, in income and wealth inequality, on climate change, etc., etc. Yeah, one more thing on that. You know, you're right. Almost every time the media talks about it, whether it's cable news or even uh, esteemed uh, print journalists in the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. They frame it as how can we afford Medicare for all and look at all the costs of Medicare for all. But they never give the context of in reality, how can we uh, afford the current system, which is twice as expensive as all other developed countries average, including Canada. And so I, I then turn back to you and ask this, when the right wing criticized the media, 
the media is appears to be deathly afraid of them and bend over backwards to help them. And so they'll aid and abet oftentimes statements that are outrageously false. For example, the Green New Deal would ban airplanes. It does no such thing. That's a total ridiculous fabrication. But the media will report it as he said, she said, that's what they say. And oftentimes won't even give the other side. Why? Because they're deathly afraid of the right wing and being called biased. But when progressives say, wait a minute, why won't you give the context on Medicare for all and the costs, etc.? It seems to be an absolute sound of silence. Why the great disparity in how they treat two different sides? Look, when you talk about Medicare for all, we are talking about radical transformation of almost 20% of the GDP in this country. Right now, you have insurance companies, drug companies that make incredible profits every single year. CEOs make excessive compensation packages. And the media chooses not to take on the special interest of this country, whether it's healthcare or anything else. And in terms of Medicare for all, Jenk, what they continue to talk about is how taxes are going to go up. What they forget to tell the American people is you're not gonna be paying any private health insurance premiums, no deductibles, no co-payments. And by the way, we are going to expand Medicare benefits for senior citizens by including dental care, by including eyeglasses and hearing aids. Somehow or another, that gets very little coverage. Yep. But bottom line is, the corporate media is not particularly interested in taking on the corporate establishment in yeah. healthcare or in any other sector of our economy. Well, that that unfortunately makes sense from their perspective. So now they they are paying a little bit more attention to some new people that have come to Congress: Alexandria Casa Cortez, Ilhan Omar, almost all <laughs> Justice Democrats. So when you see AOC fighting for the issues you care about and fighting for Green New Deal, which you've advocated for. For pretty much your whole career, when you see Ro Khanna helping you on the issue of the Amazon wages and Walmart wages in Yemen, etc., do you feel like, to some degree, with the Just Democrats, your cavalry has arrived? Beginning to arrive. We still have a long way to go, but there is look, Jenk, the most important, I think, political development of recent years is number one as a result of what you guys do, what my 2016 campaign is about, what Alexandria and Roe and Pramila and others are doing, is we are significantly changing the conversation. And the American people are now beginning to say, yeah, why should we be the only major country on earth not to guarantee healthcare to all? How come we are not addressing the great planetary crisis of climate change? Is it morally right that three people own more wealth than the bottom half of the American people? And as we have new and bold progressive leadership coming into the Congress, those ideas are gonna be discussed more and more. The American people are gonna hear that more and more despite media opposition. And the end result of that is I think we have gone a long way to transforming how the American people think about ideas that just a few years ago were seemingly radical or extreme, but today have become mainstream. If we were talking five years ago, Jenka, maybe we did on this show, 
about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. You would not have dreamed that a majority of the American people now believe it, that community after community, state after state is passing that legislation. So criminal justice, the same thing. We are making progress in a number of areas. We're seeing a grassroots movement beginning to demand that we have a government that addresses the needs of working families and not just worries about tax breaks for the super rich. So that leads me to the last question. The New York Times in discussing your potential run for president said, he is something of a victim of his own success. The senator's views on issues like universal health care and his willingness to shun corporate contributions have increasingly become not only part of the Democratic mainstream, but also litmus tests within the party. But yet none of those are policies right now, none of them have passed. So do you feel like your job is done and you could pass the baton or is there a lot more work left to do? Oh, There's an enormous amount of work to do. Good news, as I just said, is the ideas that a few years ago seemed radical and extreme are now mainstream and supported by the majority of the American people. The other very good news, and we see that in the complexion of the freshman class in the Congress, is that more and more young people, people of color, women are getting involved in the political process. So the political revolution that I have fought for for years, two parts, a progressive agenda, we're succeeding there. But equally important is the need to create a strong grassroots movement of millions of people who are prepared to stand up to the insurance companies and the drug companies and the fossil fuel industry and Wall Street and the billionaire class in general, who today have such incredible power over our economic and political lives. We're making progress there. And I think you're seeing that in the freshman class, but clearly, clearly we have a long way to go. Yeah, that was my favorite critique of you, that you've won so much that that you're not needed anymore. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we have Medicare for all, we have a fair distribution of wealth and, and income. We have solved the climate change crisis. I didn't know that, I, I guess I missed that. But I, I kind of think we have a little bit work of work remaining in front of us. All right, Senator Bernie Sanders, thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Hey, Jen, keep up the great work. Thank you. All right, there's Senator Bernie Sanders and a potential presidential candidate with plenty of work left to do. Uh, on Tuesday night, uh, we will have Elizabeth Warren in the studio and uh, we'll get to talk to her as well. And hopefully, you guys get to learn from these and uh, decide uh, whose views you like. Uh, and want to support. Uh, I actually have one more story about Bernie Sanders that I want to do for you guys. So let's go right over here, okay? So I think one thing that uh, mainstream media is underestimating, and so are the establishment Democrats, is small donors and the power of small donors. I think that they're underestimating Bernie Sanders on a couple of uh, fronts. Uh, one is his uh, name recognition, and uh, that was a huge disadvantage for him in 2016, but in this case, will in 2020, will be a big advantage. And, and I think that they undercount that. Uh, and underestimated at their peril. Uh, but I also want to show you uh, the amount of small donors he has compared to the rest of the potential presidential field, and it is stunning. So let's show you this graphic here. And you can see that he's got 2.1 million people who have donated to him small dollar donations. Beto O'Rourke is, it comes in second with a big number, but about a third of, of Bernie Sanders. 
And then uh, Elizabeth Warren is number three, Gillibrand is number four, Kamala Harris is number five. Those have a little bit of an asterisk, which I'll explain in a second. Then you get to Sherrod Brown, then Merkley, and look at that. Jeff Merkley, who is not talked about that often in the mainstream press, arguably among the top three most progressive senators there are, has substantially more small donors than Cory Booker. And, and then all the way down later is Amy Klobuchar, who are talked about nonstop in the mainstream news. So that's a fascinating chart to look at and another huge power source for Bernie Sanders that could fuel his campaign because the ability to raise money through that is enormous. In fact, let me give you some details about that. And this is from the New York Times. They, they explained the particular power of Mr. Sanders list was on display in late December when he emailed supporters with a provocative subject line, if I run. That single email netted $299,000 from 11,000 donations according to a senior Sanders official. Just one email gets you $300,000. Small donors, then you don't need large donors. He doesn't take corporate PAC money. Then you can run uncorrupted and 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 get actual people power to finance your campaign. That is a gigantic advantage. More context, Mr. Sanders had 369 days during his 2016 presidential campaign where he processed more online donations than Ms. Gillibrand did on her single best day in the Senate. Her best day, not as good as every day he had for those 369 days. By the way, the reason that Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand have so many small donors, a good number, nowhere near Beto O'Rourke and Sanders, but a good number, is because they spent a lot of money to find followers on Facebook. Legitimate, I get it, but it's a little bit different model than obviously Beto and Bernie Sanders used, and you should be cognizant of that. And finally, even some members of the establishment have realized the power of this. Anita Dunn, a former Obama official said, it is hard to see someone winning this nomination who isn't at or near the top of ability to generate small donations because they are a measure of enthusiasm. This is what we argued for so long as we supported just Democrats that raise all small dollar donations and don't take corporate PAC money. The fact that it is now catching on is amazing and they are absolutely right. It is a giant source of power and that source of power is you.